Welcome to the Mean Lady Talking Podcast. This is the podcast that tackles tough questions about relationships, life, love, and loss. It may not be the advice you want, but it's probably the advice you need. And now here's your host, grief therapist, motivational speaker, relationship expert, best-selling author, and attorney, the not really mean, mean lady herself, Susan J. Elliott. Good day, everybody. This is Susan Elliott, host of the Mean Lady Talking Podcast. And as you can probably tell, my voice is going in and out. So I am here on a Friday trying to get this podcast done. I'm going to quit if my voice starts getting shaky and I will resume it when it comes back. Anyway, I have a lot of letters, a lot of letters. If I don't read your letter on the air today, feel free to re-email it and say, for the podcast, send it to meanladytalkingpodcast at gmail.com. If you want information on any of the programs, private counseling or the boot camps, which are almost sold out. So run, run, run. If you want to be involved in the last boot camps that I'm doing, um, you can send all of your inquiries to meanladytalkingpodcast at gmail.com. It's a relatively new email address. I don't get a lot of email there yet. So, and my other ones, I'm completely inundated and I have like seven email accounts and, and I'm just inundated every single one of them. And people will routinely email me out of the blue their entire story and say, what do you suggest? Or I appreciate any advice. I don't know who people are who just pick up, just decide to tap out an email to an author of a book they read and say, this is my situation. Can you help me? And I understand the Facebook group exists for readers of the books who are doing the program. The podcast exists for readers of the book. And I have private counseling. I'm not going to read through any email that doesn't say you can use this for the podcast. I get these emails all the time. I mean, I I average like four to five a day where they are very lengthy, very long. They start out with, I read the book. Then they go into the entire relationship, which I don't read. And then at the end they say, yes. And it's like, I suggest you go to the Facebook group. I suggest you join boot camp. I suggest you make an appointment in private counseling. If you go to the getting past your breakup website, the link is there, www.gettingpassionbreakup.com. It's not that hard. And make an appointment. We'll talk. Or say for the podcast. I right now have many emails. If your email does not make it onto this podcast, please email me. And you can say, I just want to make sure you got this. You're going to read this next week. And I will let you know yes or no. Okay. Anyway, I have more letters than I can get to. Now, one letter said to me, and I got this this letter quite a while ago because I've talked about it with with my both both of my boot camps and both of my boot camps have ended. So it's been a while since I got it. Somebody said, do you have any good memories of your first husband? Which everything since our breakup has been like sweet revenge for me. You know, and he's gone. He's no longer alive. But I took so much from the breakup I turned my world around from the breakup. I was a broken, dispirited, angry, hurt, lonely, horrible, terrible pain enveloped me 
all the time when I wasn't looking at crazy relationships. I stayed in crazy relationships a long time to avoid feeling as bad as I really feel. And I just went through a couple of episodes ago. But I kept things swirling on the outside. Now, my my first husband and I were on again, off again, boyfriend, girlfriend, friends in high school. And people really didn't know you know, when we were on again, when we were off again, because we weren't taking a good inventory of it. And I wasn't that serious about having a boyfriend. Every girl I knew, every girl I was friends with had a steady boyfriend. And they were all miserable. And they were all fighting. And even though they, we had ankle bracelets and things like that back then. And even though they got the ankle bracelets and they wore them around their neck and it was very pretty. And you could tell like the girls who got the really good ankle bracelets and the one who really didn't get good ones. Then on your birthday, you get a massage, get a nice big bouquet of flowers. You'd walk around school all day with that. I went to a Catholic girls high school in the Bronx and your first corsage on your, on your birthday, a lot of people give you corsages and we would wear them on our the lapels of our jackets that we, that was part of our uniform. But if you had a boyfriend, you always got like a big giant one or a bouquet of flowers or something. Like if you had a boyfriend, it was very well known. And I was just not one of the girls that wanted to have a boyfriend all the time. So yeah, out. My first husband and I would hang out. Sometimes we'd make out. We'd be kind of boyfriend, girlfriend in the movies. We'd hold hands, maybe make out and we'd go home. I mean, we, neither one of us had lost our virginity by the time we were 18. And it became a goal of ours, to, you know, to do that together. But anyway, when he disappeared and he used to do this all the time, and I've talked about this before, he did this, he would just disappear. And I didn't know where he was. And he had all these relatives that he would bounce from house to house to house. And I didn't know where the guy was. Anyway, when we got married, I mean, he chased me and chased me and chased me. I broke up with him after high school and I went out with this guy who was very abusive, very horrible. And my first husband basically rescued me from him. He basically came between he and I. He took the guy on. The guy was not only tough and able to throw a punch, as was my ex. I mean, they were fairly equally matched as far as who was tougher. They were both very tough guys. And I thought that one of them was going to kill the other. And that's why we started moving. We moved first to Connecticut, then to Rhode Island. Then I moved to Massachusetts when we got divorced. But anyway, because that's where I had a job. He disappeared one time and I started going out with this guy. And I was going out with this guy about four or five months. And we took off to Georgia. He had this big warrant for his arrest. I mean, this is the kind of guy that I'm going out with, right? It's like he's a homicidal maniac and I'm jumping bail, basically. And I thought this was exciting. I thought this, to be perfectly honest, and how women, especially women, I mean, men, there are men in abusive situations as well, but I want to talk about women. A lot of women thrive on that kind of drama. It was truly like being in a movie we got on the bus we're jumping bail we're now fugitives well i'm not really a fugitive but i'm i'm sort of aiding and abetting a fugitive and the cops never really said anything to me about it i sold all my stuff for a ticket i had a typewriter a bike and a stereo and 
and I sold them all. It was all very exciting. And this is when he got to Georgia. I've told the story about how he locked me in the closet for two days. That happened in Georgia. I've told stories about how he choked me out in the rain. That happened in Georgia. I've occasionally, very, very seldom, talked about being raped in the woods by him, running away from him and trying to get away from him. I'm not going to repeat that very often. That happened in Georgia. He stole my car and then tried to run me down. I was on the trellis of the of the home we were staying in and on the trellis is swaying back and forth as he's slamming into it and I'm thinking I'm going to fall off the trellis and he's going to run me over which was the idea but the trellis did not go down anyway which I was lucky and I was trying to figure out how to get on the roof when I came back my because my ex attacked me at work and wound up in custody and I had already messaged, I, well, it didn't message, it was no messaging. I went to a payphone and called my, my mother and asked her for money for a plane ticket home. And I was planning on leaving. And he surmised this because I was packing all my stuff. And I had just gotten this job. And he came in and he was just out of his mind. He wrecked the place. And then the cops came and the cops were trying to scare him, you know, because he was 17. And they figured he's just a broken hearted boy because I had told him I was breaking up with him and I was going back to New York. And I said I was going to live with my father in the Bronx and he would never find me because he didn't know the Bronx and he wouldn't have no idea how to find me. Anyway, I had told him this because I'm an idiot or I like to drama or I want to see him flip out, which is exactly what he did. He got drunk and then he came and wrecked the restaurant where I worked and I was hiding in the bathroom. It was disgusting. I mean, it was just horrible. And my mother thought, my mother had already had the ticket in motion. And when he got locked up, they were trying to scare him into calming down because he was drunk and he was just yelling and how much he loved me. This is what he would do. He would get drunk and he would do this nonsense. I don't know how many restraining orders I had against him. It was just like a gazillion. So they told him when they had him that he needed to stop otherwise he was going to go to jail. And being a smart ass, being an alcoholic, being a wise ass, being 17 and being dumb, he says... Oh, well, if New York ever finds me here, I'll be doing lots of jail time because I jumped bail. And I was like, oh, my God, you are so stupid. So stupid. So stupid. So he got locked up and he was getting extradited to New York. Happy day. Happy day. You want a drama here? You got it. My mother is flipping out because he's on his way back. Of course, the state of New York is paying for it to get him back to Georgia. My mother is hysterical. Hysterical. She thought he got locked up before I had called her for the money for the plane ticket. And that's not how it went. But that's what it looked like to her. And she was very upset. So when I came back, now she didn't like my boyfriend, oh, my first husband boyfriend. She didn't like him, but she really didn't like the really abusive boyfriend that I ran away with. And I was gone for months and she was upset, really upset. Although she turned my closet into the kitchen, which I was not upset about. She had her eye on the closet. My room was off the kitchen and we had a very small kitchen. And my closet in my room 
jutted into the kitchen and she wanted to take it down and make cabinets in the kitchen. And when she, the minute I left, she did that. So she was like, I miss you so much. And I said, you miss me so much. You turned my closet into the kitchen. Like, I don't even have a closet anymore. There's, I opened the door. There's just a wall there. It goes to the back of the cabinet. It's now in the kitchen. So she was like, well, you know, I didn't know if you were coming back. I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So I was only gone for a few months, but Anyway, so my ex comes along and he's all flipped out because when he came back after being away and he came back and they told him that I ran away to Georgia and I was never coming back, he was flipping out, flipping out. He could not handle it. He promised me the sun and the moon and the stars and everything. And I was so, uh, I was so traumatized. I was so traumatized by everything that went on in Georgia. I really wasn't in any good place for him. I can't tell anybody how it was when I got back, but he was just beside himself. It was like, I never thought I would lose you. I never thought that I would never see you again. I just took for granted that you would be there and please go back with me. And I told him I needed some time to heal. I was actually doing the right thing. But then the other boyfriend got out. Now he's chasing me around and I have not yet gotten to the place where he stabs me. That incident has not yet happened. When we come home from Georgia, I've been locked in a closet. I've been choked until I black out. I've been trying. He tried to run me over with my own car that I left in Georgia, gave it to his aunt and, and the stabbing incident had not yet happened, which was the final blow. So my, my first husband kept saying to me, come back, come back, come back. I was like, I don't know. I'm confused. I don't know what I want to do. I did another round with boyfriend, um, who, when he got out of jail, that didn't go well. And then I broke up with him. And what happened was, what happened with the final breakup was, he let my dogs out. He, he would prowl around my house. This is what he did. And it didn't matter what time of the day or night it was. He would open the gate and we had three or four dogs. I think we have four dogs at this time. None of them were street dogs. They all go out in the yard. They had the run of the yard. And my boyfriend comes up. I have broken up with him. My family knew the drill. They knew that at some point in the next few days, he was going to get drunk and he was going to come to my house and he was going to start wailing. And then the next day, the neighbor kids were going to make fun of the wailing because he would go, sweetie, sweetie, sweetie. And then the next day I'd wake up and the kids would be playing in the pool next door and they'd be like, sweetie, sweetie, sweetie. They'd be imitating what went on in my life the night before. I mean, that is just embarrassing and horrible. And I was like, oh my God, like the neighborhood kids are making fun of me. They're like 10, 11. I'm like 17, 18. I'm like, oh my God, I have to, I have to end this. This has to end. So I ended it. He did his normal shtick, but he did earlier. He used to do it after 11 o'clock. I had like three or four different restraining orders on him. And he had come usually at a, after 11 o'clock. And then we'd see all the lights go on and all the neighboring houses and you know, the cops are coming and the, because his family were cop fighters, whenever one of them was in trouble, they didn't send one cop car. They sent three to five cop cars because they didn't know how many of his family were going to be there and how many were going to be up on the, on the roof, kicking out the lights or trying to fight them or whatever. They were cop fighters. I called on him. They would send three or four cop cars to my house in the middle of the night with all the lights going. He comes earlier and I was telling him, embarrassing the crap out of me. 
and I wanted to stop. And it's 17, and I don't know, like, what else to tell him. So he decides, I guess, to come earlier in the evening. So my mother had let the dogs out. It was like 10 o'clock, so I assume... She had let the dogs out and then she was going to go to bed. That's what, you know, we had a normal household. His household was everybody was an alcoholic and everybody was crazy. And he did not have a normal household. I had a normal household that was alcoholic, but my parents stayed to a schedule. They had jobs. They had a normal life. They weren't as crazy and they weren't involved with the police the way his family was. His family was intimately involved with the police. The police knew every single one of them. I could stand here all night and tell stories. It was just incredible stuff that I went through there. So anyway, I noticed my dog was gone. My dog Noodle was the love of my life up until this point. I got Noodle when I was like eight and now I'm like 17. So the dog is nine years old and I adore him and he's missing and he's goofy. Like he's the type of dog that will just run in front of a car. And I'm furious. I'm absolutely furious. I've never been so furious. And if you've heard my story about the night I left my first husband, it was because of the dog. When he went to abuse the kids and the dog, I had enough. I'm like, You can abuse me all you want. You cannot abuse my children. You cannot abuse my dog. And that night when I wouldn't let him go after the kids, he went after the dog. So, and that happened when I was 30. Now, the the incident I'm talking now with these dogs, I'm like 17. I'm living at home. Max was the second love of my life as far as dogs go, but Noodle was my first. And I just adored this dog. And Noodle was missing. And I was furious. So I get in my car and I go looking for Mr. Asshole. I'm going to kill him. I mean, I'm going to kill him. If I have watched almost every episode of Snapped, almost every single episode, and when I see some of those episodes, I'm like, my ex-boyfriend and my ex-husband are so lucky I didn't own a gun because they drove me to homicide. Now, I think that people like Jody Arias and Shani Hubers who were trying to use abuse victim or battered woman syndrome, they were not battered women. They did not live with these men. They were not. They went to these men to confront them or whatever it was they were doing. Jody Arias absolutely premeditated the murder of Travis Alexander. Absolutely. But what I want to say is there are women. Jody Arias is not one of them. Shani Hubers is not one of them. There are women whose stories I can identify with and realize if I had a gun, like he would have been dead. Except I wouldn't have buried him. Like all these women go through these, these like long drawn out scenarios to bury somebody. I I think I just would have shot him and left him there. But anyway, uh, so I see Mr. Bozo. So anyway, I see him and I, I I, I drive right past him. I'm like, I'm not stopping for you, stupid. So I'm going up and down the hills looking for Noodle. And Noodle's all I care about. I don't care about anything else. And I'm furious. And I see Mr. Crazy drunk. Oh, my God. Like, he never got to his wailing part because he let the dogs out. He opened the gate. He let the dogs out. And I was done. So I'm driving around. I'm 
furious. I'm driving up this hill. It's dark. And all of a sudden, like this person jumps out in front of me. I stop the car. The next thing I know, it's my boyfriend. He's in the seat, in the passenger seat next to me. I should have locked the door, but I didn't. Those were manual locks at that point. So I start driving and we're driving. I'm driving like 50 miles an hour down this main road. And I'm screaming at him as I'm driving because I'm like, I'm driving you home. And you're going home and you're, you're sleeping this off. And then I'm going to get my dog noodle. So we were driving and all of a sudden he takes the wheel and he goes to, to turn the wheel. He says what I find now to be a cliche. It wasn't a cliche back then. He grabs the wheel, tries to turn us into a pole. And he says, I'm going to kill us both. If I can't have you, nobody can. And he knew that he talking to my ex-boyfriend again and then I didn't want him near me and it was over and so what happened was he gets back from Georgia we live within a mile of each other so I decide to go there and try to make peace with him because he is facing a lot of jail time and I figure you know he's gonna go away he's got all these charges he's got this long rap sheet he jumped bail he was on probation whatever it was he was doing He's going away. So let me just be nice to him and we will go on forever. And I'm just going to be nice to him. I'm just going to tell him, you know, sweetie, honey, baby pie, be nice and we'll get along. So that was a foolish, foolish dream. Like he's going to be normal, you know, coming back from Georgia. Nothing scares an alcoholic. Nothing. It's like he, if I had gotten popped and arrested the way he got popped and arrested and then extradited back like on a plane with state troopers and stuff in handcuffs and 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 foot chains i would i would not be out causing trouble and raising hell which is exactly what he did i mean nothing scared him and many times alcoholics do not get scared so anyway i was over his house i stayed over his house and he got up and left and i was like where the hell did he go he went out drinking and he knew that i did not want him drinking he knew this he had been in aa three or four times at this point and he was just not doing what his sponsor told him to do. And his sponsor was a bit of a pushover. And this guy was just, you know, into playing all kinds of games. But the problem was that he was adorable when he was sober. I mean, absolutely adorable. He was good looking. He had a good body. And he was funny. He was absolutely adorable when he was sober. Absolutely adorable. I adored him when he was sober. When he was when he was drunk, he was the meanest son of a bitch on the face of the earth. And he had all this anger that came from years of being in an abusive alcoholic home. And he took it out on his girlfriends. And he had no trouble getting girlfriends. None whatsoever. He was never out of a relationship. He got into a relationship when he was in jail. And if it wasn't for that relationship, I don't know that I would have ever gotten away from him fully. You know, I mean, we left the state, but like 10 years later, he's still calling me. Or he's calling somebody who knows me. He's calling an intermediary and he wants to get in touch with me. He wants to make amends and also the foolishness. No. So anyway, he comes in at four o'clock in the morning and I'm furious. I'm just going to go home. Right. So I'm standing at the sink making coffee for myself because I'm going to have a cup of coffee and I'm going to go the hell home. 
that's what I'm going to do. So I'm standing by the stove making myself a pot of coffee. And I think they had like an old-fashioned percolator. And I'm making the coffee. So I'm standing there and he goes to me, make me eggs. And I looked at him and I was like, I'm not making you eggs. Now I'm looking out the window. Counter where I'm making the coffee is to my right. I'm looking out the window. He's on the other side of the counter and he pulls a knife out of the sink, a knife that had been clean in the in the clean dishes. He pulls a knife out and he puts it to me and he goes, make me eggs. And I said, you think I'm going to make you eggs because you're you're waving a knife at me? At this point, I was so angry and I realized I cannot be nice to him until he goes away. This I, I can't do this. And I'm standing there and I'm like, why did I even think this was going to work? When I tell people I've been where you are, I am not lying. Anyway... He kept waving the knife around and I was waiting for the coffee to be finished. I couldn't just walk out the door because it was on the stove. So he, he's waving the knife around and I'm just ignoring him. He's getting very close to me. So I put my left hand out and tell him to stand back. And he stabs me right in my hand. I still have the scar. The knife went right through to the bone between my, my index finger and my middle finger. Right between there. It, the knife goes into the bone. It felt like I cracked the bone, which I did. So I was like, holy sh**, you just stabbed me. And he's like, oh, I only stabbed you in the hand. Like he was going for my body, but I was turned away. And, and then I put my hand up and he came in and stabbed me with the hand. And then he said that I basically stabbed myself by putting up my hand because he had been waving the knife around and he wasn't really doing anything. So I'm like, you think that you're going to get away with this? I mean, this is like strict liability. And I wasn't a lawyer then, but I'm a lawyer now. But I pretty much know that if you stab someone, there's criminal liability liability there. And he definitely, if you look at it as a tort, a civil tort, he was negligent in his use of the knife. He was using it in a way that it's not meant to be used to attack a person. So even though I was many years, even though I'm 20 years away from law school, I know in my heart of hearts standing there that no court is going to listen to his bullshit that I basically stab myself by putting my hand into the knife. What ridiculousness. So I went to the emergency room because it wouldn't stop bleeding. I mean, blood was just gushing out of my hand and it wouldn't stop. So I'm like, I'm going to the hospital. So I drive myself to the hospital. It's like, it's my life story, driving myself to the freaking hospital. Drive myself to the hospital. They bandage it up. They say, yeah, the bone is chipped. They give me stitches. They bandage it up. But definitely, they said it wouldn't have stopped bleeding if I didn't go to the hospital. So anyway, that was the breakup. And I broke up with him and I said to him, if you come near me, I am getting a restraining order on you. Now, that night, so now we're driving around and we're broken up. And I said to him, he's like, oh, no, well, I can't have you. Nobody can have you. And I'm like, you know what, dude, I've had it. So right after he goes to turn the wheel and I pull it back, we pull into his paternal grandmother's house. Now, if we had pulled into his maternal grandmother's house, he would be yelling, screaming, carrying on in the driveway. She would come out and she would enable him in some way. I loved her. I adored her. But she enabled the crap out of him. And when I finally got him put away, which was at the end of this episode, she bailed him out a few months later by putting our house up 
And he wouldn't have been home for Christmas if it wasn't for that. But anyway, but now we're in the driveway of his paternal grandmother. Now, his paternal grandmother, even though all the troublemakers in the house were on his father's side, all his uncles had gone to jail, his aunt had gotten into trouble. All of the kids that his paternal grandmother raised were in some kind of trouble some way, somehow. But the grandkids didn't go cause scenes in her house. I mean, I don't know what the story was with this woman, but all the badness stayed away from her house. Like she would not tolerate, she would not tolerate scenes or drunk and disorderly. And that's all her sons and grandsons knew how to do was drunk and disorderly. That's all they knew how to do, but she would not allow it in her house. And I don't know when, you know, maybe when her kids were teenagers, she put this rule in, but she was very strict about it. But maternal grandmother who lived 15 miles away and we weren't going there, they would have misbehaved more over there. So I get there. Now it's about midnight at this point. We're in his paternal grandmother's driveway. And I say to him, get out or I'm laying on the horn for your grandmother to come out. I said, get out. He's like, no. I said, get out. He says, no. I pick up this thing. It was in my car. And this is where I say, if I had a gun, I would have blown his head off. I honestly, honest to God, I still didn't know where Noodle was. And I was flipping out and I wanted to get rid of this guy and go find my dog. There was this thing in the car. I don't know what it was. It was apparently went to something in the car, but it was this. And if anybody out there is a mechanic or would know what this is, please tell me because it's made me crazy over all these years. It was this metal thing and it was probably as big as my hand and it had these sharp prongs on the bottom. I don't know what it was. I honestly don't know what it was. It was some part of the car and I don't know what it was and I don't know why I was in the front seat. But I picked it up and I started hitting him with it, with the prongs. They were very sharp prongs. And I just started wailing on him. And then he goes to get out and I don't want him to go out. I reach across, I pull the door closed and I'm still hitting him with the thing. And he's like, let me go, let me go, let me go. And he's like ready to lay on the horn for his grandmother to come out. And I'm like, nope, dude, you're not going anywhere. So anyway, I go back to the house and I call the police. I get him out after I finish. And I, I swear, if I had a gun that night, based on everything he had ever done to me, culminating in letting Noodle out, I would have blown his head off. I absolutely would have blown his head off. And I'm not a homicidal person. Unless I see somebody abusing an animal or a small child, then I'm, I'm homicidal. But it, for my own protection, I'm not homicidal. But that night, because Noodle was missing, and I just thought of all the things he did to me, and now he's going after my dog. No, that's not happening. He had ripped up all my clothes. I had this beautiful, beautiful robe that a Vietnamese woman had made for me. It was terry cloth, and it had a zipper down the front. It was just form-fitting instead of, you know, big, bulky robe it was gorgeous absolutely gorgeous made of like the finest terry cloth it was so comfortable he knew i loved that that robe and he tore it up and i just thought of all these different things that he did he put his foot through my windshield he locked me in the closet he choked me out all these things i'm thinking of it and i'm hitting him with this thing and i'm like if i had a gun i would have blown his head off 
So I go back to the house. I call the police. And the, the state trooper that shows up, he looks at my hand, which is all bandaged from the stabbing like three days before. And he says to me, is that where your boyfriend stabbed you? I had no idea that they knew. They knew. They absolutely knew what happened. And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to press charges? I said, yes, I do. And they were so anxious to get him in jail. So he puts me in the cop car and then he goes and gets him. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe that we're going to ride to the police. He says to the cop, why are you why are you picking me up? She assaulted me. He goes, look at these. Look at these. Uh all of these pinpricks that she put in me. And and the guy's looking at him like he's out of his mind. He's like, yeah, you're going to have to tell it to the judge. This little girl stabbed you. Like, you're going to have to explain that to the judge. Anyway, they went with attempted murder. They got him on like a $100,000 bail. And they got him locked away. And I went to the grand jury and I testified, but they did not indict him. And they did not indict him because they felt like I had gone back with him too many times. And I kind of deserved what I got, which is ridiculous. And, and juries better about this stuff because I really was moving on. And the cops were on my side. It's like the police were on my side and they came and got me for the grand jury testimony and they waited with me and they talked to me and they introduced me to the prosecutor and all these things that went on to try to keep this guy in jail. But the grand jury didn't indict because they said I went back with him too many times. And that's what they kept asking me when I was testifying. Like, oh, he did this. Well, why did you go back with him? Well, oh, he did this. Why did you go back with him? So they were basically blaming the victim and he didn't get indicted. And the, and the cop came out and he was very upset said to me don't worry he's going away for good in January and this was around September October and his grandmother did bail him out for Christmas and he did go away in January so anyway my ex kind of rescued me at that point and I let him which I shouldn't have because I was still not ready and now there was something even worse that was sent to me noodle was fine and I noodle was home while I was beating the crap out of this guy noodle was home and sleeping and I'm like you know beating the crap out of this guy thinking that my dog is gone forever anyway my ex was very nice to me at that point and I needed someone who was nice to me and we just got back together it was almost like we'd never been apart that this guy had not come between us but he did I mean he really did I was not the same person and I couldn't commit to the relationship and he was buying me he was buying me a leather jacket he was buying me a new car he was letting me use his car I learned to drive a standard on his car he did really nice things for me but I was in psychologically emotional hell and I kept breaking up with him. I kept breaking up with him because I couldn't commit emotionally to the relationship. And I needed time to heal. And I knew that. But I didn't know any of the words. I didn't know the right words. I just knew, like, I need to be alone. And I would break up with him. And then he really, really begged me to come back. And then he would remind me of all the things he did for me. And he was giving me money. And he was doing this. And he was doing that. And he was doing all kinds of, kind of breaking up with him, going back with him, breaking up with him, going back with him. And I was making him crazy. I mean, I remember one time him standing there just crying. And he wasn't. He was a real tough guy. He was a real tough Brooklyn Italian. And he was standing there crying, going, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the guy did his time. He came back out. He started stalking me again. And I'm like, it's like freaking Groundhog Day with this guy. It's ridiculous. 
So we left. We went to Connecticut, and one night, he was out in the carport. The ex-boyfriend was out in the carport. I'm living with my first husband, and we're not married. But he's out in the carport. And, and he's he's doing something to my car. I think he's trying to, like, cut the brakes or something. He's crazy. My first husband says to me, we got to move. We got to move. So we went to see my mother in Rhode Island that weekend. And we both found jobs. And we found a really nice apartment for a lot less than we were paying in Connecticut. So we went to Rhode Island. We stayed there. And when I was 30, I had endured... 10 years of him holding that those breakup against me. He would cheat. He would be abusive. He would tell me everybody abused me and he never had abused anybody. So it was my fault. He took great pains to accuse me of toying with his emotions during those breakups. He would bring up these breakups and what I did to him, and he would say, do you remember the night you were walking on the road and I saw you and you're with your friends, you had all gone out for pizza and beer, but you couldn't be bothered talking to me. And I was like, yeah, I do remember that night because it seemed like he was stalking me because I was in a place that, like he couldn't have guessed that I was there. I did go to this bar after work and I was, you could drink in 18. And this bar was right on the Connecticut, New York line. And Connecticut was 21 and New York was 18. So there was a lot of people from Connecticut used to come over here. So it was like, instead of going to a New York bar where like you knew everybody, you go up here to this bar that was on the, it was in New York, but it was right on the state line. So all the kids from Connecticut came over there. And it was a good time. I mean, the pizza was real greasy, but it was good New York pizza. We were having a good time. So, and we went there. We got out of work at like nine o'clock. We went there at nine o'clock and it was now past midnight and he's finding me on the road. This is a guy who insisted that he be in bed at 11 o'clock every night and he always insisted that but here it is it's after 12 on a Friday night we're walking down the road somebody had dropped us off there from work and we used to commute in all kinds of weird configurations so somebody had dropped us off there and we were all walking home so we were like a half a mile down from the bar and he pulls up behind me and so he asked me if I would go home with him and we could talk. And I was like, no, I had been drinking. I had been working. I worked as a camp counselor during the day and I worked cleaning offices at Ethan Allen's corporate offices in Jamboree, Connecticut. I worked there at night for four hours cleaning offices. And this is when people smoke. And I mean, I had so many so many desks that were full of cigarettes and you know, really disgusting. And we had to go there and we had to clean it every single night. So I had, it was Friday. I had been a camp counselor in the sun with the kids all week. I was cleaning offices all week from five at night till nine at night. And then I had just been in a restaurant, in a bar, drinking and eating pizza and having fun with my friends. And now he wants to have a dramatic talk. And I was like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to be with my friends. I want to be light and airy. I want to go home. I just want you to leave me alone. I don't want to talk about relationships or you or me or anything tonight. I don't want to do it. Just leave me alone. Well, we're married like three years and he brings this night up to me. Why couldn't you talk to me that night? Why? I couldn't believe it. I'm I'm defending this night. I defended this night over and over and over and over again. It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And I said, I can't be, I can't be punished my entire life for that. Like, why did you marry me if you were holding that night against me? And, and a bunch of other nights. I mean, he, he would go through, you know, this guy was 
had a crush on me. And we're coming off the softball. He was playing softball with my best friend's boyfriend. And everybody knew this guy had a crush on me. And we were walking off the softball. And the song Beast of Burden came on the radio. And so he sidles up to me, this guy, and he's going, he's calling, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty girl. And somebody, and a lot of people knew my boyfriend, but somebody told him about it. And he goes after the guy. And he, he pulls the guy out of a party and he goes over to the guy's car and he punches the fender. And he says to the guy, Next time, that's your face. He says, it's not your face now because I like you. But next time, that damage is going to be on your face. Okay. The guy comes into work the next day. He worked at night with me. And everybody knew he had a crush on me. And everybody everybody knew, you know, everything. And then he followed, he followed me around all summer. And I wasn't ready for a relationship. But anything I do with this guy, because you know, I did go to ball games with him. I did hang out with him. Somebody told him. But the thing is, nothing happened. Like, I really liked the guy. Like, we were good friends. And I knew he had a crush on me, but I wasn't ready for a relationship. And I'm driving my ex-boyfriend's car. You know, I still had his car. Wearing the jacket he gave me. I was doing all these things. And I said to him for years that, like, nothing happened. So then we're up in Rhode Island. I live... Now, this is, like, the small world of New York and Rhode Island. My adoptive brother was in a relationship with, okay, let me, the guy that I'm talking about, the guy that had a crush on me during high school, he went out with this very pretty girl. She came from a very large family. And one of the reasons I was nervous about being his girlfriend was because his first girlfriend was like the prettiest girl in school and she was just gorgeous. And I was like, I can't measure up to that and I think he knew it and I think that was why he sang the pretty girl thing to me because he kept telling me how pretty he thought I was and most guys just said I was cute but he kept telling me I was pretty and I think he knew that I was a little bit pushed out because of how his girlfriend had looked but anyway he remained friends with the family and he was friends with a brother there was like eight kids or something I think there was eight or ten kids. I don't know. It was a very large family. But anyway, the guy who had had the crush on me, that my ex went and punched the car, he remained friends with that family. My brother, my adoptive brother, was in a relationship with her oldest brother. So he remained friends with the family. So I have three kids now. I'm 26 years old. All this drama with him happened when I was 17, okay? So now I'm 26, almost 10 years later. We had bought a historic house, and my brother and his partner, who was the brother of, you know, this person's ex, lived two doors from us. They got us this house, and their house was a wreck, but they were historic houses. They were gorgeous. finally fixed them up. But their house had been a wreck and they fixed it up really nicely. And we had been living in our house just a few months. And we had cleaned it up because you could not live there the way that it was. It was a slumlord's house. It was disgusting. We were we couldn't move in like the first month that we owned it. It was horrible. So it had to be fumigated, all kinds of things. It was terrible. We had dumpsters and dumpsters full of garbage. It was disgusting. But we did all the hard work. We put the hard work in and we flipped the house. And it was good investment. Anyway, so there we are. We have a house. We bought our first house and I have three kids. 
And the almost boyfriend from nine years ago is now standing in my kitchen with his ex-girlfriend because he's still friends with the family. And the family is friends with my family because my brother and his brother and her brother are together. And it was one of the situations where the mother was very religious. So, well, my mother was very religious too, but my brother was, I'm gay and that's all. And she took him to a psychiatrist for a few years to make him change and he never did. I don't know why. (laughs) I was like, my brother's going to, that's a story I don't tell very often. But yes, my mother, my mother discovered that my brother liked boys when he was 16 and she took him to a psychiatrist because he was going through a phase. According to her, it was a phase. There goes my voice. Okay. So anyway, all these things that happen with this guy or that guy or this breakup or that breakup, I spent 10 years paying for that. And when he first hauled off and hit me and I remember that day very well we were together about four or five years when it happened and he convinced me that it was my fault he's like I have never touched a woman and I've been with you for years and I haven't touched you everybody else has abused you and finally like I smacked you in the face because you're so annoying and I was like oh my god he's right like it's me I caused people to abuse me and I believed it hook line and sinker But anyway, there were things he did over the years, especially in the beginning, where he made me feel like he was going to take care of me. I didn't realize he was holding back all these things I did. And he was going to do whatever the hell he wanted when we were married, when he was perseverating on these incidents that happened. And if he had just left me alone and let me kind of work it out... I might have come back with him. We might have had a different relationship. I don't know that. I haven't diagnosed him. I don't call him a narcissist. He has a lot of narcissistic ways. He did gaslight me, but he was a he was your run-of-the-mill generic abuser. And he was a generic abuser to me. I don't believe he abused his second wife. I just don't. I believe that there were things that happened. But she was always at his beck and call where I wasn't. You know, I was breaking up with him. I was going out with other guys. Because he knew me at a time in my life that he didn't know her. He met her in his late 20s. He knew me as a teenager when I was going out with different guys. But it was like, yes, he did do a lot for me. And he did get me away from the from the homicidal maniac. And I do have good stories about him. But they were also littered with me paying the price for breaking up with him. And every single thing he did in our marriage that was wrong was attributed to my bad behavior before we ever got married. Things he never said a word about. So anyway, yes, my ex did do nice things. And since I haven't gotten to any of the letters, I'm going to have to do a few podcasts today. So hang on. I will get there. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.